Section 15 of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. Section 15. The name of James C. Fair will be recognized at once as one of the Bonanza Kings, and like the others, he enjoyed only a fair education starting for california at about the same time as the rest he taking the overland route while they went by water his only capital consisting of a miner's outfit and with those simple implements he began his hard-fought battle for wealth he made mining a scientific study and after about six years of variable success he became known as an expert soon after this he accepted the superintendency of the ophir mine and later the hale and norcross since which time he has gone on until now he can count his worldly possessions by the million he is a most thorough miner and his long continued life at the bottom of the mines has had a telling effect on his health that he has successfully managed such wild and wicked men as many miners are without becoming the victim of some accident indicates something of his ability finally his impaired health necessitates his withdrawal from active work and he made an extended voyage returning in a much improved condition. In 1881, he was elected to the United States Senate, where he acquitted himself with credit. He charged nothing for his services, an event without parallel in our history. However, he received all for which he went to Washington, honor. He is assessed for over 40 millions, and can well afford to donate his salary to the government. Like the other Bonanza Kings, he seems to have been specially favored by fortune, but the old saying, birds of a feather will flop together, is true in this case, for these men are all practical miners and changed partners often until the firm of Flood, Fair, and McKay was formed, since which time they all seemed perfectly satisfied with each other. All had been sorely tried during their earlier life and were not found wanting either in ability or stick to as they passed through the crucible of Dame Fortune. As we have just been reading the lives of the three Bonanza Kings, J.C. Flood, J.C. Fair, and J.W. McKay, possibly a description of one of their enterprises in the shape of a flume will be interesting as described in a New York Tribune correspondent. A fifteen-mile ride in a flume down the Sierra Nevada mountains in thirty minutes was not one of the things contemplated in my visit to Virginia City and it is entirely within reason to say that even if i should make this my permanent place of residence which fortune forbid i shall never make the trip again the flume cost with its appurtenances between two hundred thousand and three hundred thousand dollars if it had cost a million it would be the same in my estimation it was built by a company interested in the mines here principally the owners of the consolidated virginia california helen norcross gould and curry best in Belgium and Utah mines. The largest stockholders in these mines are J.C. Flood, James C. Fair, John W. McKay, and W.S. O'Brien, who compose without doubt the wealthiest firm in the United States. Taking the stock of their companies at the price quoted in the board, the amount they own is more than $100 million, and each has a large private fortune in addition. The mines named used 1 million feet of lumber per month underground, and burn forty thousand cords of wood a year wood is here worth from ten dollars to twelve dollars per cord and at market prices messrs flood incorporated 
would have to pay nearly $500,000 a year for wood alone. Going into the mine the other day and seeing the immense amount of timber used, and knowing the incalculable amount of wood burned in the several mines and mills, I asked Mr. McKay, who accompanied me, where all the wood and timber came from. It comes, said he, from our lands in the Sierras, forty or fifty miles from here. We own our over twelve thousand acres in the vicinity of Washoe Lake, all of which is heavily timbered. How do you get it here? I asked. It comes, said he, in our flume down the mountains, fifteen miles, and from our dumping grounds is brought by the Virginia and Truckee Railroad to this city, about sixteen miles. You ought to see the flume before you go back. It is really a wonderful thing. The flume is a wonderful piece of engineering work. It is built wholly on trestle work and stringers. There is not a cut in the whole distance, and the grade is so heavy that there is little danger of a jam. The trestle work is very substantial, and undoubtedly strong enough to support a narrow gorge railway, and runs over foothills, through valleys, around mountains, and across canyons. In one place it is seventy feet high. The highest point of the flume from the plain is three thousand seven hundred feet. In on an airline from beginning to end, the distance is eight miles. The course thus taking up seven miles and twists and turns. The trestle work is thoroughly braced longitudinally and across, so that no brick can extend further than a single box, which is sixteen feet. All the main supports, which are five feet apart, are firmly set in mud sills, and the boxes or troughs rest in brackets four feet apart. These again rest upon substantial stringers. The grade of the flume is from 1,600 to 2,000 feet from top to bottom, a distance, as previously stated, of 15 miles. The sharpest fall is 3 feet and 6. There are two reservoirs from which the flume is fed. One is 1,100 feet long, and the other is 600 feet. A ditch, nearly 2 miles long, takes the water to the first reservoir, whence it is conveyed 3 and one fourth miles to the flume through a feeder capable of carrying 450 inches of water. The whole flume was built in 10 weeks. In that time, all the trestle works, streakers, and boxes were put in place. About 200 men were employed on it at one time, divided into four gangs. It required 2 million feet of lumber. But the item which astonished me the most was that there were 28 tons, or 56,000 pounds of nails used in the construction of this flume. Mr. Flood and Mr. Fair had arranged for a flight in the flume, and I was challenged to go with them. Indeed, the proposition was put in this way. They dared me to go. I thought that if men worth twenty-five or thirty million dollars apiece could afford to risk their lives, I could afford to risk mine, which isn't worth half as much. So I accepted the challenge, and two boats were ordered. These were nothing more than pig troughs, with one end knocked out. The boat is built like the flume, V-shaped, and fits into the flume. The grade of the flume at the mill is very heavy, and the water rushes through it at railroad speed. The tears of the drug can never be blotted from the memory of one of the party. I cannot give the reader a better idea of a flumite than to compare it to sliding down an old-fashioned eave trough at an angle of forty-five degrees, hanging in midair without support of a roof or a house, and extending a distance of fifteen miles. At the start, we went at the rate of twenty miles an hour, which is little less than the average speed of a railroad train. The red-faced carpenter sat in front of our boat on the bottom as best as he could. Mr. Fair sat on a seat behind him, 
and I sat behind Mr. Fair in the stern, and was of great service to him in keeping the water which broke over the end board from his back. There was also a great deal of water shipped in the bows of the hog trough, and I know Mr. Fair's broad shoulders kept me from more than one ducking in that memorable trip. At the heaviest grades, the water came in so furiously in front that it was impossible to see where we were going or what was ahead of us, but when the grate was light and we were going at a three or four minute pace, the view was very delightful, although it was terrible. When the water quite enabled me to look ahead, we could see the trestle here and there for miles, so small and so narrow and apparently so fragile that I could only compare it to a chalk mark upon which, high in the air, I was running at a rate unknown to railroads. One circumstance during the trip did more to show me the terrible rapidity with which we dashed through the flume than anything else. We had been rushing down at a pretty lively rate of speed when the boat suddenly struck something in the bow, a nail, a large stick of wood, or some secure substance, which ought not to have been there. What was the effect? The red-faced carpenter was sent whirling into the flume ten feet ahead. Fair was precipitated on his face, and I found a soft lodgment in Fair's back. It seems to be that in a second time, Fair himself a powerful man, had the carpenter by the scruff of the neck, and had pulled him into the boat. I did not know at this time that Fair had his fingers crushed between the flume and the boat. But we sped along. Minutes seemed hours. It seemed an hour before we arrived at the worst place in the flume. And yet here foretells me that it was less than ten minutes. The flume at that point alluded to must have been very nearly forty-five degrees inclination in looking out before we reached it. I thought the only way to get to the bottom was to fall. How a boat kept in the track is more than I know. The wind, the steamboat, the railroad never went so fast. In this particularly bad place, I allude to, my desire was to form such judgment as to the speed we were making. If truth be told, I was really scared about almost out of my reason. But if I were on my way to eternity, I wanted to know exactly how fast I went. So I huddled close to fair and turned my eyes toward the hills. Every object I placed in my eyes upon was gone before I could plainly see what it was. Mountains passed like visions and shadows. It was with difficulty that I could get my breath. I felt that I did not weigh a hundred pounds, although I knew in the sharpness of intellect that I tipped the scales at two hundred. Mr. Flood and Mr. Hereford, although they started several minutes later than we, were close upon us. They were not so heavily loaded, and they had the full sweep of the water, while we had it rather at second hand. Their boat finally struck ours with a terrible crash. Mr. Flood was thrown upon his face, and the water flowed over him. What became of Hereford I do not know, except that when we reached the terminus of the flume, he was as wet as any of us. This only remains to be said. We made the entire distance in less time than a railway train would ordinarily make. In a portion of the distance, we went faster than a railway train ever went. Fair said we went at least a mile a minute. Flood said that we went at the rate of a hundred miles an hour. My deliberate belief was that we went as a, at a rate that annihilated time and space. We were a wet lot when we reached the terminus of the flume. Flood said that he would not make the trip again for the whole consolidated Virginia mine. Fair said that he should never again place himself upon an equality with timber and wood. And Hereford said he was sorry that he ever built the flume. As for myself, I told the millionaires that I had accepted my last challenge. When we left our boats, we were more dead than alive. The next day, neither Flood nor Fair were able to leave their beds. For myself, I have only the strength to say that I have enough of flumes. End of chapter 15. James C. Fair.